Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, a legend, Liz Fair. No other introduction is necessary. A a, a music icon uh, creating some of the greatest uh, records of of all time. Like some of her music is, is some of my favorite records ever. And she is on the show, and this is a doozy. This is a good episode. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, Tristan. He's also the show producer and the guest booker extraordinaire. He's been, oh man, he's been working hard on this show lately. Uh, Tristan, thank you for everything you do. I love you very much, buddy. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just telling people about it, letting people know that you like this thing and that we're doing this thing and uh, you enjoy it. You can also support it by heading over to uh, wherever you're listening to it and rating it and subscribing to it on iTunes. And thank you to everyone that does that. You can also support it by uh, going to patreon.com slash turned out a punk and, and really huge thank you to everyone that does that. And speaking of support, uh, this thing would not be possible without the kind support of Vans who uh, a few years ago said, Damien, we want you to keep doing the show. We just don't worry, you have to do it out of your own pocket. So they helped me cover the cost of this thing, and it is very much appreciated. Um, also, check out floodmagazine.com for episodes of Punk as Fuck, Punk AF. It's a show I did with them a couple years ago where I went around L.A. and met a cool, punk, a really cool group of people involved with punk rock and kind of just celebrated this history and the the sort of musical tradition of punk within that city. And there's, a I think, four videos out so far Maybe a couple more to come, and they are all fantastic. So please do yourself a favor. Do do do, do yourself a favor and check it out. You know, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, the legend Liz Fair. Now, Liz Fair is someone who, uh, to me, is is the ultimate example of a a true DIY career. You know, like she went out there, she made these tapes. Not even to make these tapes to to get signed. She just made. These tapes pass them off to some friends. Next thing you know, she signed a Matador. Next thing you know, she releases one of the most important <laughs> indie rock records of all time. Next thing you know, she's you know on a major label, getting uh, hit singles that are in soundtracks and things like that. But the whole way through, it's still Liz Fair. You know, like she never changed. Like obviously the music evolves and changes, but her voice is still there. And you really follow. It's, it's almost like an autobiography following her journey throughout her career. It's, it's amazing. I, I'm a huge fan of her work. I got to meet her one time, like years ago at Matador 21 for, I'm going to say it was probably about two minutes. I think I might say 30 seconds on the show, but probably, maybe it was two minutes. Um, and it was 
amazing to get to meet her. And so to get to do this, ho, 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 we got a lot more than two minutes of uh, nerding out to do today. That's for sure. Uh, oh, she has a brand new record coming out later this year called Sober-ish. And it is, uh, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to hear it. She's also going to be touring later on with Alanis Morissette and Garbage. Um, we talk about that, you know, Garbage. Former members of, of, of the Turned Out, oh, not former members, members of the Turned Out of Punk family in Garbage. So, you know, it really feels like that's a Turned Out of Punk tour. We got to get someone from Alanis Morissette on. Maybe Alanis Morissette. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the legend, Liz Fair, on Turned Out of Punk. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, as I was just telling you briefly off air, I got to talk to you for, I think it was literally like two minutes before we took a photo at Matador 21. So now it's going to be a much more prolonged conversation. I finally get to ask you all the nerdy questions. You got got off very easy in those two minutes. Now it's going to be the real. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, well, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Liz, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I don't remember how I first got into punk. I just know that it was sort of a a, a running line as I started to get into music, I would say. Mm-hmm. I remember feeling like running exactly along the same timeline was my introduction to why I liked the music that I liked. And as I sort of researched like who people were or heard about who they were. I think it just, I understood that punk was part of what was driving the music that I was into. And so I became more interested in it. Although it wasn't until college that I really like listened to punk bands. Although I did go to Dead Kennedy's show. Does that count? I think maybe it was freshman year. I could have, I could have, I don't know. I think it was <laughs> high school. I think it was high school. I swear to God. No, I couldn't have gotten in. Could it have? All I know is that I remember the lead singer sticking his foot in the toilet bowl backstage and remember thinking that these people were like animals. I'm like, God, you guys have trashed this place. (laughs) That's awesome. So you grew up around Chicago, right? Yes. So where were you kind of getting into music from? Um, Friends. I think I took a lot of art classes and the kids got to decide what music we listened to as we were crafting or whatever we were doing. Yeah. So a lot of music came through sitting in art classes where friends would play music or right around when I was growing up, the Walkman was introduced so you could buy cassettes and listen to it and mixtapes were very big. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I just learned about it through my peers. It's kind of fascinating when you think about how much the Walkman changed the way we consume music. Like now it's how we all consume music, kind of like in this personal way. But prior to that, you had to consume music kind of publicly. Like even with headphones, it was kind of public when you were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because that was so formative in terms of Mm -hmm. the music that I make or why I make it the way I make it. As if it's like speaking right into your ear, you know, as if we're having an intimate conversation, just dropping in on a already in progress conversation and i think that comes from the walkman mentality like you're in your own little world and you and the artist are sharing something that the rest of the world it gave me a lot of courage music gave me a lot of courage to go out by myself or go out you know in downtown which scared me when i was young and i think punk especially helped me deal with the anger issues I was feeling about the systems that we were forced to go through 
you know, to get into college or to play by our parents' rules or whatever it was, that age when you realize that someone just made up these rules. These are just laws that were made up. And I think there's a disenchantment with the world that happens to almost all teenagers where they recognize that the authority they've been working under for so long is, you know, <laughs> bankrupt or corrupt or whatever it is. Well, and it's it's so funny because you bring up the tape and it's just such an important tool that all of a sudden was kind of given to young people where you didn't have to press a record like you could you could make music. And I think obviously, you know, the genius tapes that you put out are, are testament to that. Here's an artist who was able to kind of find voice in another time that might not have been able to, I think. Well, I don't know. I, well, I'm not for sure. to put that no, on. I think so. No way would I have been in music. I'm not that much of a performer. Mm. You know, I'm not that much of a vocalist. I was certainly not going to become a virtuoso guitar player either. And I think what punk really meant to me, especially in college when I went to Oberlin, was do it yourself. Like get up there if you have something to say. Punk was about ignoring. It was primitive. It, mm -hmm. I related to it because it related to the primitive human state. Like what is it to be alive on this planet? Like why should you wait for permission to get up on stage? If you have something to say, get up there and say it. Trash the place, you know, just do your, it wasn't about, it was accessible. You know, as punk is so off-putting to so many people, they feel sort of assaulted by it. I felt welcomed by it. I felt like I understood what the clarion call was. Well, like you're saying, like, you know, finding voice for anger through it, like it is one of those rare places in, in art that really, you know, that all, all art's supposed to do this, but like that really foregrounds emotion over virtuosity or over anything else. Yeah, expression over over permission. Mm -hmm. uh, so what was the first concert you went to? Not doesn't have to be punk at all. I mean, just music wise. It wasn't. Oh, my God. Like big concert. Yeah. Period. I mean, that my parents didn't take me to because that's unfair. Give me your parents once, too. Uh, then I've been to symphony more times than I can count. And <laughs> I've seen like more major musical productions than I can count. <laughs> um, but the first the first concert that I went to because I chose to go. The first concert I went to was Journey. Mm. I was invited to go with a, a school friend and her parents. And the first concert that I went to because I wanted to go myself was The Police. And I remember feeling like at that point, I thought they were kind of punk, yeah, you know, yeah, and I don't definitely. know why I thought that, but I thought that. And I thought that my liking early Madonna was kind of punk in a weird way. Mm -hmm. And these are very mainstream artists, but again it's that for me punk is an attraction to a it's not rebelliousness it's an attraction to someone stepping outside of the prescribed lines and saying all you have to do is step one foot to the left and you're out you know yeah and that's a feeling that i needed back then it's funny you bring up both those artists because both of them came out of punk right madonna through the her band the breakfast club and the police obviously were like this punk band prior to that and it's it, it it was funny because I was thinking about your self-titled record and specifically the song Why Can I and all the soundtracks that appeared on, and you need those kind of things that pop up in the mainstream that are connected to punk to draw people in. Like you know, you're saying like you were drawn in by the police and Madonna because you heard, I don't know that thing that intangible that kind of runs throughout pop culture, and I really the feel that. Breaker. Yeah, exactly. And I think Why Can I kind of serve that same sort of function. Like I know. 
obviously you probably had to take a lot of shit from people for that <laughs> record but I really think in retrospect, looking back on it, like how many people did that bring on board and how many people got into that and then dug back into your catalog and then discovered, you know, a whole new world because of it. Yeah. And especially young women because of the way Why Can't I was promoted. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of girls that were, you know, just hitting puberty would really like that song and then slowly discover the rest of my career, my catalog, and realize that it was coming from a place of what is the word we're looking for it's not rebelliousness it's not rule breaking there's there's a dissent it's an active dissent that you are somehow embodying with your lyrics or vocal or delivery there's a dissent mm -hmm. rock and roll has that but punk in particular allowed you to be as you said untrained um unqualified the idea for me that I understood punk to be saying was you are human, you are alive, you are therefore qualified, like you are qualified to have an opinion, just because you're here. And that was really important to me. I needed that then. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's I guess it's also honesty and, and authenticity, because as long as you're being real, it'll shine through on some level, it, even if it's on you know, like a, a glossy video on, on much music, like something, well, I'm from Canada, so much music for me, MTV, but like that still shines through that somehow. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the tour with Alanis and garbage and what people probably don't see is that I see the punk in that, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> like I see the punk in that billing and I think a lot of people would not. And I definitely see that. Yeah, definitely. And I don't feel that way about other bills that I'm on. It's a particular quality that an artist has that I'm attracted to. I think Bowie uh, was a perfect example of someone who was mainstream, catchy, popular, but punk, undeniably so. I think that's that's my milieu. That's where I'm comfortable. And garbage is almost like a punk rock supergroup when you look at like the lineage of everyone in that band and you know coming yeah. together from Scotland and in America together like it's and once again like you're saying like it's it's not necessarily presented in that sort of dead Kennedy stick your foot in the toilet context but it's still punk in its way. Yeah, and Alanis's first record jagged little pill when you think about how young she was where she came from, you know, in her entertainment journey who she was working with as a producer at the time, that record does have that, that yelp of pain coming out of it. You know, that, that shriek into the wind that to me, that's sort of, I have no options left. I'm going to sing. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. that's kind of it. <laughs> well, and she got her start on, you can't do that on television, which, you know, is the most punk rock Canadian TV show of all time. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's great. It's the where it's every time you said, I don't know, uh, green slime that looked more like vomit would come raining from the sky on your head. Perfect. Because acid <laughs> green was the color of punk back then. Exactly. <laughs> and I think there were punk characters on it. Like it is a, it is a YouTube dig you should do one punk time light. when you have some time. Punk light. I'm probably <laughs> punk light. I mean, truth be told, that's probably my genre at some level. Punk light. Well, I guess what going to Oberdeen, Ober, Oberlin, sorry, Oberdeen, Ober, going to Oberlin, what was your first exposure to kind of like a more, you know, DIY kind of punk culture? I guess like, you know, after that Dead Kennedys show. 
Well, it was definitely Oberlin was the land of I know so much about music. So <laughs> everybody was an expert on their favorite bands and how those bands had formed after another band had disbanded. And it just was everything, every weekend, every party, every night mm -hmm. was live music, you know, and every guy you dated was giving you a mixtape. And I tended to date people that were into music at that time and guys in bands I was interested in and they would send me the mixtapes. So suddenly I like that changed though. That started to get mixed up with like the cult and the damned, you know, and minor <laughs> threat and stuff. Like there was this sort of more zhuzhi punk thing that it was moving into where I, I wouldn't really, I don't know if I'd call the cult punk, would I you? would. Yeah. Would you? I, you know, and, and, and members of the cult have been on this podcast, you know, because once again, have they? okay. Yeah. Well, so and, then I started, it was, but there's a little more flowing hair in that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think it's almost like these twin influences kind of come together to make punk where you have this sort of like glam New York dolls thing. And then this sort of like Patty Smith, heady intellectual thing. And yeah. the cult, I guess, is more of that glam hair thing kind of coming back to the forefront again. <laughs> Yeah, so I got into the glam hair punk thing. <laughs> but also, also like just anytime I liked pop, it was because the edge underneath it was punk. Mm -hmm. And that's what I understood. You know, it wasn't until I was like a full adult and a maybe even a mom with a baby that I was like, I like normal pop, you know, but like it was always, it always had to have that edge underneath it. There had, I didn't mind the marketing. I didn't mind the fog machines and the hairstylists. I didn't care about that. Like Marky Smith, you know, like mm -hmm. everyone hates what they have to deny, especially I, you know, that kind of delivery. I'm like, yeah. I just get chills even thinking about it. What is sexier than that? Like, what is sexier than holding the front of a band where people's expectations are of a certain type of performance? And then you come in and you're literally taking the, the beat you're playing against the beat of your band. It's so brilliant. Like you're not only rebelling against society, you're rebelling against your own backing band. Like that's just perfect. I, I think the thing with the the fall is like it's almost that perfect kind of counterbalance to the cult, like you're saying, where you have like a, a not conventionally attractive person getting up there not conventionally talented in rock and roll and music as presented by like a band like the cult but at the same time it, it, it's that thing that just like yeah like how can you not listen to frightened and just be like this it chills up your spine or something you do it's just for me it just it gets me right where i live were there any bands kind of happening at Oberlin when you were there? Like were people starting bands or was it, was it more oh, just yeah. like kind of. Oh yeah. 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 Um, there was one, the big band on campus pay the man had Chris Brokaw um, and Orestes Delatore, the drummer. I'm trying to remember who the other guy was. That's really lame that I can't remember the other one. Um, another power trio. Anytime they played, I went for sure on campus. Um, uh, Sue Young Park with Seam. I think Seam started mm -hmm. back oh, then. Wow. Yeah. Um, John Fine was a friend of my boyfriend Link's. So John Fine wrote that book. Uh, my band is better than your band or hang on. I'll look it up. From Bitch Magnet, another former guest of the show. 
bitch magnet. Yep. Bitch magnet. That's what Sue Young was doing at that point. So, so John fine. Like I was surrounded by people at Oberlin who were into punk music and have we looked up John's book? I should know this too, because he has been on the show, but I will correct this in the intro. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Um, but it really, yeah, like the scene you're kind of describing, it feels like, you know, once again, it's it's all people kind of like punk rock stuff, like, you know, uh, you know, Chris, who you brought up, played in Gigi Allen's band after all. But like, yep. it's also people like kind of kind of pushing it in different places and kind of taking that ethos and and bringing it to like maybe a sonic place that's different than Minor Threat. Yes, yes. But it was all still one world. Mm -hmm. It was the world pushing against the world. And I was in that world pushing against the world. Even though I have my own little bedroom pop proclivities from a lifetime of listening to the radio, it still came out in me in a way that I identified as punk, even if it's little girlish and, and stupid. I almost leaned into that, like what people would have made fun of me. I decided to make fun of myself. Um, so they couldn't, that, that old ploy <laughs> well I, I i think that's uh, sorry go on no go ahead i I, th I think that's the thing that your your stuff's so brilliant because you know like post codification of punk rock which is definitely happening by the mid 80s like it's a sort of hyper masculine you know like like tough guy thing and like at least how it's presented on like things like chips and quincy punks and stuff like that but yeah. the reality is if you look back at the very beginning of it and you got stuff that's coming out of the crass kind of collective and you got all these like incredible groups like the Modettes and all these like the slits and you know x-rays but like it really feels like it, it wasn't this hyper masculine thing in the beginning and so many people have come on the podcast and talked about it. in the very beginning it was like it was like women and gay men and and trans people and, yeah. and queer women and, and and you know like it was like a real different kind of movement than it kind of got taken up as yes and i think we knew about that sort of hyper masculinized male thing um, but I felt like it was a scene that embraced women. I felt like women were a part of it. I remember, um, God, well, Slater Kinney, I would define as punk. I would define um, Bratmobile as kind of punk. Like there was a lot of fanzines going on at that time. And a lot of women were involved in making fanzines and putting out fanzines. And that was a part of punk too. The fanzine culture was our way or their way of distributing and connecting with each other. Absolutely. Did you ever do a Z? I didn't, I should have, but I mean, I was, it was, it was such a big part of that. Yeah. Like the visuals that went along with this music, they were, they were part and parcel of the same thing. Like the visual message was also the musical message. It very much seems like it was an aesthetic and like, you know, it's echoed on some of the, I guess, the cover art of the girly tapes where it's like that, that photocopier on whatever color cardstock you could get. But like, it just created something that now people are obviously trying to replicate on computers, but it was <laughs> an aesthetic born of necessity. Right. Because if you Xerox something a million times, it's going to de degrade, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. lines are going to. And that was so part of that, that urban decay that we were so into as an aesthetic. You know, you took a bunch of young people that didn't have much money and lived downtown, you know, squatted on each other's floors or whatever. It's just like, however you could do it, you got to the right part of town and then you joined that scene. 
there was always flyers taped everywhere on all the buildings. You know, that was another way before the internet, you had to find ways to let people know that your band was in town and the ground game was a pretty big part of it. Do you remember that? Oh God. Yeah. Oh God. Like I, I, and, and I've got friends that still swear that if you don't put up flyers, you're not going to get people at your show. Like it's still, it's different than a, you, you can't ignore something when you see it in the physical world in the same way that you can when it's, when it's on social media. Right. Right. There's something about it that is, I mean, I think about the magazine Ray Gun, which I contributed mm -hmm. a piece to when they did that, that book recently, um, celebrating Ray Gun. Um, just the fact that half of the, that someone would make a magazine, this is just like the most punk thing to me and I loved it so much, that someone would make a music magazine that you literally could not read half of <laughs> because the typeface was done in such an artistic manner that it was deliberately illegible. And then the, the photographs were manipulated or odd angles or they had that found art aesthetic that was yeah. so important to us. Everything was about the accessibility of human beings to express themselves through art. That was, I think, the founding principle of what people were doing in that DIY culture. They were saying everyone could and should make art and you don't need much to do it. You just need a human soul and the willing, the willing flesh, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. It's funny when I you said had trouble with it. it was hard to get on stage. I was very, very shy and didn't feel comfortable doing it. But I think the punk in me drove me on to do it. That's why I got on stage. I would have to say I would say punk music is entirely the reason that I got on stage at all. I never would have done that. Did you first play on stage when you moved out to San Francisco or is it after you've done the girly tapes? After I did the girly tapes. I, my first wow. show was in Chicago, I think, weeks before Matador released Guyville. Uh, one thing I've always wondered is, how did that Carnivore 7-inch come about? Like, was that in the works before you signed to Matador? Or is that, because it comes out just before, right? I don't know how that came out. I think we were delayed for some reason, putting the record okay. out. I don't remember why. So they might have just sort of put out a 7-inch or whatever it was. It's on a different label. It's on like Minty Fresh Sound, I think, instead of. Oh, yeah. No, he was trying to sign me. And oh, we were, okay. everyone was suddenly trying to sign me. Like every label in the world was trying to sign me. And I was with Matador. And I, I don't know what I was just being an asshole. I would like, you know, if they were going to take me somewhere. I, I was so broke that my whole life was about like, what can I, if someone wants to take me out to lunch, like, yeah, go ahead. I'll go. Sounds good. You know, like if we're going to fly you to LA. Sure. That's, that's great. Let's do it. You know, like that wasn't me being as devilish as everyone thought at the time. I think Matador was like, what the fuck is she doing? But I mean, that was just my lifestyle back then. Yeah. You know, you want to come over and do a face mask? Sure. Can I make toast? I'm really hungry. You know, like just grifting my way through life at 23. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, I think people that aren't in bands, and granted, I never went through it like you went through it, but like people that aren't in bands don't really understand that it's a lot of glamour, but not a lot of sort of uh, foundational financial stability, you know, yes. when, when it starts happening. Yes, very much. That's, that is the curse of the blessing. How did the girly sound tapes get out? Because according to legend, you only made three copies or three sets of them, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I think I sent them to Chris Brokaw and Taewon Yu. And Tay was the one that made copies and copies and copies and sent them everywhere. And he was deep in the fanzine scene. Taewon Yu was a friend of mine from New York. When I lived in New York for a semester, um, he was around the corner and he was friends with my roommates. So Tay and I started to go to shows together and hang out together. I think we both like to get stoned and we we're both art students. Um, and we just became like go out buddies as one has in one's youth. And he loved the girly sound stuff and he didn't really like it once it came out as a proper record. <laughs> he's very clear about that. <laughs> he's very, he's so wonderful. Like I'm so lucky for the people that I've known in my life and that a lot of them are still around and we can run into each other and laugh about how much older we are now. Yeah. Well, he was a legendary member of uh, kicking giant too, and a fantastic yes. band. Yes, exactly. And I think that's they. You did a song with them. That's like the first thing to come out. I think, right? Like, uh, I think on so. The chinny chin chin comp, I believe. Yeah, I think he was the first one that recognized my music. Were you stoked when he was doing that, or were you like, dude, I sent these to you? What are you doing, bootlegging this stuff? I'm just. I was so oblivious. You know, by then I was. I'd been recalled back to Winnetka. I was back with my parents. Um, the money ran out. You know, like I didn't, I couldn't live. So I like went back home and I was probably bitching and moaning about being stuck in my childhood bedroom again after having gone out and lived in the world. Um, but it was a good time. So Tay was in New York making all these tapes and like telling everybody about it. And um, I was just, you know, did you empty the dishwasher last night, Elizabeth? Um, no, I'll do that. You know, like, have you... <laughs> doing all that stuff and it's just such a weird cloudy time in my life i would give you a better sound bite but i can't think of what i was doing i know i was oblivious and everything was day to day nothing was thought out in a long-range plan i wasn't how do i explain this it is hard to explain what i was thinking back then or how it felt because my brain doesn't operate the same way anymore like i have created pathways now in my neural network that will not allow me to be as in the moment and present as I was when I was young. I was just there wherever I was. If I found myself backstage at a show, or if I found myself in the apartment of some band while they're rehearsing, or if I'm on the subway, or if I'm in my parents' house, like I was just there and yeah. looking for the next opportunity. That's all it was. Yeah, I, could, I completely get that. And I think that's what I've always been, you know, I've always like, oh, in addition to these incredible songs, but I, that's what I've always been love following your career is because it's such an organic career. Like it never felt like, you know, there's so many musicians and even people that have been on the show where you're talking to them and they talk about having like an agent or a manager when they were in their teenage <laughs> band, you know, and it's like, oh, wow. So this was, this was your job. Like, this is the only thing you were going to do in life. But I think watching your, like everything, and even records, like, like the way you kind of react to exile with whip smart, like I, I, like my band, like I, I totally took influence on that with my, my with my band's records too, where you're like reacting to the experience as it's happening. Like, it's just yeah. so enjoyable. To, like, I know it's probably terrible to live through, but as a music fan to like follow. Well, I just I love that you like it because that makes me feel very good because it's it's sort of something that I sometimes feel bad about myself for not having a better sort of overarching planning. You know, I can strategize, but I 
like you said, most of my records show the journey of my life. And mm. that's pretty, there's like one I can think of that doesn't, but I get in trouble constantly. I never stop getting in trouble ever because I'm always reacting to what just happened with the next thing. So it's, it's often a surprising like jag to the left or jag to the right or, you know, some things. Yeah, well, it's like you said, like it's that, it's that, it's, but it's that honesty, you know, it's that thing that we we were trying to put our finger on earlier, you know, that descent, that you know, pulling the curtain back a little bit and showing everyone like it's not what you think it is. Um, yeah, you know. like even I just did a live stream, and at the very end, we had some extra time with the puppet that we were using in this live stream, and I just threw on a demo of mine for the live stream i was just like trying to put it on a different uh put it in a different key use a different tuning to play old songs so i was just like messing around with that in my room and i just wanted at the end of this live stream which was like more polished than i could have done without brad just to put i have the instinct to show everybody how we got there i have the instinct to show you behind the curtain that's my instinct because it still goes back to that sense of everybody could and should do art like it's it's just i hate when there's a big separation between you know the star and the people watching because i think every single show to me is about what's happening the happening in that room right something is happening in that room because I go back to my early punk shows and I think of us all standing around in tiny little dive bars, watching someone distress themselves on stage, like yeah. actually open up and show how much pain they're in. And that becomes a communal experience that becomes incumbent upon the audience to support that and to represent that space like this is an okay space for you to do this right now you are literally like writhing on the stage freaking out and making animal sounds like mm -hmm. but we're gonna hold that space for you so you can get it out because we know that's why we're here that you've been living with this repressed in you all week or whatever it is you know all year all lifetime and to me that that should always be part of every show no matter how successful you get. And I think the best concerts will always have a moment behind the curtain. I remember watching something like Joss Stone at a big festival and she's in the middle of a big set. And I was much older, obviously. I was like practically finished with my career at that point. Um, and she stopped the show and just did one song on her guitar. She just sat down in the middle and it was that thing, because I'm not sure that I, I was like, okay, Joss Stone, she sings really cool. She got this like vibe, but she felt commercial to me. And mm -hmm. in, when you break it down to just the person and their instrument and their song, it's, it is the, it is the same impulse for everyone. Everyone becomes part of the same thing, which is I have something I need to say. It's in me. I've got to get it out. And I put it to music. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's also like you're saying earlier too, um, just now that it's it's that you know we want that realness from these performers. Like I'm sure even when you saw Journey, like if, if Steve Miller had, or Steve, sorry, Steve Perry had just been like, "Yo, I'm having a terrible day right now. I'm just gonna sing one of my favorite songs. I'm gonna be honest with you and broke yes. the show." That's what we all want, right? Like that people love it when people on Saturday Night Live start laughing at their own jokes. Yes. 
Yeah. And I think people that are attracted to punk are attracted to that realness. Yeah. Like I'm not punk anymore, but I'm still deeply attracted and my ears perk up. Everything awakens in me when I see someone being real like that. It's just like, whoop. and that, that is the deepest spirit of punk inside of me. Was there ever a show where you're like, oh, this is too real. This has gone too far. Like, you know, we mentioned, I mentioned Gigi Allen a little bit earlier, but like a Gigi Allen type thing where you're like, this is not, this has left the performance space and gone into something not good necessarily. Um, Definitely. My pet peeve is when people have been given that audience safe space, you know, when the audience is supporting that and then they take advantage of it. They're like, okay, so I'm going to self-indulge now for like a 10 minute song, you know, that pisses me off. Like if you've taken what these people are, are giving you, which is their attention, their support, their understanding, and then you sort of use it to stoke your ego by being like, Oh, okay. I'll play one more. <laughs> you know, that shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like I fucking hate it. I hate it so fucking much. Uh, I just want to drag them off stage. Cause I'm like, you were not alone in this room. You know, they are there giving you their attention and their time. And they're there. I never go to any show that I'm playing without hundred percent trying to do my best ever. I don't care if, no one showed up and we're playing to a dinner table supper club of like, and that's happened. You know, we can play like these huge shows and then there's like an odd gig in between the next gig, you know, just sort of like on the way. The routing date. The routing date. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't care. There are no phone ins on a Liz Fair tour. We always hit that stage with everything we've got, no matter what. And it doesn't always work, but like, no matter what, we hit that with everything we've got. And that's important to me. So yeah, self-indulgence after you've been granted this space pisses me off so much. So yeah, it doesn't even have to be necessarily a physical thing where someone taking it too far. It's almost like just like an artistic kind of a abuse of, of a platform. It's an ego abuse. Yeah. There's no artistic abuse that I, I mean, if someone, if something's upsetting and someone's being hurt, I would feel that way. But if you're just talking about like someone performing Mm -hmm. and no one's actually getting hurt, I don't care what they do to themselves, but like, (laughs) I do care (laughs) if they start like (laughs) taking that gift and running with it, you know, like you're trapped in that space. It's not like a record. You could turn a record off. You can decide when to put a record on, but like once you're at that show, those audiences were as much a part of the punk ethos as the performers. And they were yeah. there being as much a participant as the performer. It wouldn't have happened without. And that's a deep core value of mine. Yeah. I don't think I valued the audience nearly as much as I, as when I started evaluating the prospect of doing a live stream and just being like, there's no way I could do it. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. I don't think. <laughs> It, it's a different skill set. Like it, it's like, like you said, you took a lot to get over the the hump of wanting to play live or being able to play live, but it, it's almost like the same way when you're trying to get over that hump of, of just not having an audience there as support, even if it is a tiny audience. It's really hard. I mean, I looked at the footage of the live stream and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm performing straight at like this camera. Yeah. There's nobody there. And I can see it in my performance. I can see this sort of static deer in the headlight. What the fuck is this? You know, like yeah. Yeah. I, 
I mean, I've found that I just told my manager yesterday as a joke, because I'm doing a bunch of interviews like here in pandemic without people. I don't even know who I am. Like who, why are we talking? You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> that, that being in the presence thing, like it's been a year since I've been in front of an audience, yeah. a year since I've flown anywhere. There's no precedent for that in my life. Not even when I was young, like this has just been such a set, you know, you got to look at yourself and see who there's, there's a you under you and who are, who is that? And I think this is a check-in for a lot of people. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent right. Like my, my mom was a flight attendant. And so this is the longest I've ever been not on a plane. And it's just, yeah. it's so weird to kind of process that, even though it sounds incredibly privileged to be saying that out loud, but I've been thinking about that a lot. I mean, yes and no, that's just, it's a life that people, it, it's my, you know, yeah, it's what we lived. And now we're living something very different. And there are definite gifts that come out of this. My relationship with my son has never been better. And I, I know him so well. He could have just gone off and gotten a job, you know, after college finished. But having him here, thank God he was here. You know, he's had to yeah. do the engineering on my records. He did the album art for my upcoming album. Like he set up all the lights for the live stream. Like it's almost like an apprenticeship in the medieval sense that, you know, like we were blacksmiths, you know, it's like, well, you're here, son. <laughs> Let's hammer some iron, you know, like oh my kids are too young to put them to work yet. And I really feel like I have an unused labor force waiting for me at some point. And I I seriously, <laughs> I there's very little I feel smug about, but having a child that is as helpful and intelligent and and creative like i mean what a blessing to watch yeah. blossom as a young person it's yeah i'll miss that yeah that's I, that's what i felt too same thing with my kids like i feel like this has been the one thing that i think as a as a traveling musician like obviously existential dread career dread all that stuff but just being having an excuse to be home with family is yeah. it's amazing yeah puzzling <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely puzzling. Are you worried about it coming back? Like getting back on stage? Like that's my big fear is like, will I be able to do it again? Because as you're saying, it's the longest time since you started. I mean, the lucky thing for me is I'm always afraid to get on stage. So I don't <laughs> expect it to be much different. Like I have done this enough and have lived long enough to know that, you know, I've been, I've been off stage way more than you probably. I've been off for years at a time. Like when I was composing for television, I have no problem not performing as long as I'm being creative in some area, but mm -hmm. like, I, it always surprises me when I do. Usually I cry after the first rehearsal because the power of an actual band behind me can feel overwhelming, you know, and I'm just, again, in a rehearsal space, I'm just facing nothingness, trying to sing. I feel sometimes like, you know, when we're watching like SpaceX and all these rocket tests that we see on, on the internet, like on Twitter. That's what it feels like when I first get in front of a live band that I'm supposed to be leading. Like what? You take this sort of like bedroom writer and then you put this like big band behind her. And I just feel like I'm like, there's a booster rocket beneath me. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know what words are just saying. I think it's in two. And then when you get on stage for the first time, about halfway through the show, you realize you've done this like a bazillion times and it's fine. It's fun. It's actually great. But nothing saves me from the first 
three to five songs any yeah. time ever. It, I think that's part of the reason I wanted to do this thing in the beginning. It's just so I could have that kind of reassur- reassurance from people that I've grown up watching perform. <laughs> and I just assume are like the most like just, oh, it's it's no, no sweat like, off my back. Where is the justice that all the photographers are allowed to shoot the first three songs? Because I guarantee the first three songs of mine suck. <laughs> It should be the last three. Come in for the last three. It should be the last three. (laughs) Don't bring them in the beginning. Bring them at the end. Uh, I always find like by the end of the show, like, you know, the people that were casually there have left. So you want that full crowd (laughs) for the first three songs. (laughs) You know, there's that's that's a good point. That's definitely a good point. I I read the interview one time that you said that you're still waiting to write your kind of modern lovers record or or your and also your pink moon, you said, I think, in the interview. The two. Oh, yes, they still they hang above me. The sort of Damocles. Um, Yes. Pink Moon is a perfect, perfect record. Why can't I write that? Why can't anyone like it's just mm-hmm. it's incredible. Modern Lovers, again, that should be both of those. I think those two albums more than anything embody what I think I should do with both an electric guitar and an acoustic. So with my acoustic work that I do, I should have been able to write my Pink Moon and it pisses me off that I haven't. But it's obviously such an incredible record that who can do it, you know? Yeah. And the same thing with Modern Lovers, like the the lyrics and the sparseness and the perspective of it on life and love, that that should be what Liz Fair is making. Liz Fair keeps not quite making that. But, but it's good to have goals. It's good to have good goals. If you're aiming in the right place, you're bound to get closer than if you're aiming in the wrong place is my theory. And I think it's because you have made those records. Like, obviously, you're not going to make those exact records, but but you've made well, I don't feel the like equivalents. I'm... I know, I know, I know. And I think, you know, that that's what keeps you going, I guess, too. But at the same time, like, as someone looking in, like, it's amazing how, you know, like, I think it's that motivation. You kind of need that motivation, I guess, to keep making records. I do. I mean, I always have to believe that my next thing is going to be amazing. You know, mm-hmm. I need that. It's like fuel. Cause no one else, no one else is going to give you that. Like that's self-generated. I think that has helped me in my career. And when young musicians or young artists ask me for advice, I always tell them it's a matching grant. Everybody in the industry wants to help you once you're already going, once you already have juice, they want to invest in a product that's taking off already, Yeah. but don't, it's not even good for you to get someone that wants to bring you from the ground up. They're going to shape you in ways that they shouldn't. And it's always at any point in your career, I don't care how successful you've been, you're going to prove yourself again and again and again. And if you don't like that feeling, don't be in the music business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, but like, I think that's where, you know, your, your, your career is like this organic thing that has developed like, you know, and you've developed into the songwriter because of this organic process. It, it would seem like from the outside, at least. Yeah. Everything is about getting something new and we're not sure if it's going to go over off the ground. That's, that's my work life. That's my workflow. There's other parts of it, but that is the most, that's the skill set I've had to hone and uh you know that's i feel like i've been dead in my career at least three times and resurrected myself and it's easy to look back years in and go like well we did this and this and this and then we did this and this and this and look we're back but 
getting people to do that with you and to get that journey right again is something that I've found. I mean, I guess if you're a different artist, if you play constantly, you never come off the road, you don't have to do that. I don't know. I'm always, I'm always starting from scratch in some way or another. Yeah. Well, I, I think also it's just because it's like, it's not like a, a career goal. It seems like it's like these artistic goals that you have. So oh, it's yes, not... these are artistic goals. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's funny we were talking about the modern lovers. I never even thought about it till right now. But even with like you think about bands like the Velvet Underground or Iggy Pop or, or, or you know the Stooges, I mean, or MC Five, like they all kind of wanted to be rock stars. With with the modern lovers, you kind of get that thing where you're like you talked about, like you're making music because you have to, because you can. Like the modern lovers are kind of that's where that comes from into punk, I think. Yeah, like I just love that. There's nothing more punk rock than like. I like the old world. <laughs> I'm down with my parents. <laughs> like, what is more punk than that? Like, the new world is cool too, but I like the old world. You know, like, he's basically saying, like, the opposite of what the punk movement would say, but he's saying it's so punk that it's punker than punk. It's, yeah. it's punk est. Yeah. And he was so punk that he stopped wanting to make loud music, right? Like, he, right. He, like I'm too punk for music. Follow it out to its logical conclusion is part of it. Yeah. I, I think so. there's a difference. I think there's a difference. And I'm thinking about this over the course of the show. There's a difference between, at least in my view, a punk ethos and a punk um, movement. So there's the punk scene that existed because of XYZ bands and then there's the punk ethos, which is why do it in the first place. So I think there's two definitions of punk that I actively use. But I think they all start from the same place, right? Like it's just eventually someone has to find a way to market it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I, I, I guess also like uh, this has been amazing, by the way. And anytime you want to come back and, and talk about all this stuff, please know the door is always open. <laughs> Thank you. This is a fun thing to talk about. I just I kind of wanted to talk briefly, though, about when you kind of, you know, when you're when everything starts happening and, you know, like, obviously you get signed to Matador and you're making this record. Like, what was it like hearing these songs performed with a band first or like, I guess, fully realized for the first time, um, you know, from bedroom recordings to to like one of the most classic records ever? It was it it was an interesting and fascinating and uncomfortable and exhilarating experience. It was all things. There was a, a lot of making Guyville that felt embarrassing, like when I had a microphone in my face and you could hear every, you know, when you're just playing in your room and you're not recording it, you're not hearing all the mistakes or the pitch, the pitchiness or the wobble, the warble. It's like when you first heard your voice recorded, played back. Mm -hmm. I just can remember when he, when Brad would solo my vocal in the studio and there maybe people would stop by and they're just sitting, hanging out. And my voice would come over the big speakers like soloed with nothing on it. And I just wanted to die. I wanted the floor to open up and swallow me whole. Like, the agony of that and and the battle with the the sense of self like why do i think i can do this why am i why is my music getting recorded and then that sort of fierce protective self that's like because i made it damn it you know like because it's here it has a right to be here you know like <laughs> and that kind of thing and and that was part of 
the journey and then the exhilaration of hearing like Brad's drums change my song and Casey's lead guitar give it edge and give it um balls give it like I don't know like it, it's not justification I'm searching for a word here that represents its validation almost mm -hmm. and that was I mean, then the world opened up and I thought, oh, my God, great musicians do that. They come and play on your song. And it's as if that song could never have been written any other way. And that was the crack cocaine for me. That was like I could do this for the rest of my life because I'll just write the song. And then it, depending on who the musician is that puts in the parts, we can chase absolute magic. Do you find that same sort of thrill, I guess, from that from doing the scoring work? I do. I definitely do. Given the project, yeah. right? If the show is really bad and you're just like agonized through it. I've definitely been part of that. I've been part of good shows. I've done great shows, but that same heightened reality that maybe you take a drug for, I get that from putting score to a scene. You yeah. know, if it's the right score to that scene, it changes everything. It's magic time. And I could chase magic all day. I do chase magic all day. That's what I do for a living. It feels like that work is so polar opposite. Obviously, you know, you're separated and, and career separated, but from where you started, where you're doing like these intensely personal songs by yourself to these collaborative efforts where you're trying to give greater voice to someone else's project or like, obviously not, you not like you're not putting your creative input, obviously, but like, you know, like you're part of a collective effort as opposed to this personal effort i i can totally see why you would see it that way and that makes perfect sense but that's not how i experience it i mm -hmm. experience it as exactly the same as being in a recording studio whether it's my song or it's their film it's still me i mean i'm making a riff to go with this and i'm designing a, a piece of score which then i will take into the studio and another musician will play on it and another person will fit it into the scene and we'll look at like where the in and the out is and do we want to anticipate or are we telling the joke before the joke happens or is that funnier like all that stuff is is the medium of emotion and i think i'm really finely tuned into emotional moments and how they impact the people experiencing them and the people around them. And I can do that with music. I can make the thud hit your chest with music at the right part. And so you can do that to score. And I don't, I don't ever, the whole time that I was scoring, I was an employee. You know, I showed up to the meetings and the post sessions and take the notes and do changes. You know, all that kind of stuff was definitely the opposite of being a star where the whole show is about you and what do you need and do you need coconut water and do you want yeah. a straw with that and like there was an awareness that I had that like okay so my position has changed I'm not the star here I'm just but but I was still a recording artist like this no one I didn't have to do television composition you know I chose to do that there was no there's no sense that like oh your career is not happening you should do something else like this is a way to stay home while my son was in high school it was a way to start a new career that was very interesting to me and it felt just as magic in the studio sense 
Oh yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to sound like I was trying to diminish the artistic craft. I of think it. it's I, interesting to talk about. I didn't yeah. take it that way at all. Like, okay, good. No, it was an interesting thing to do and to look back on. Um, it, it just feels to me like you're you're like um, like you're saying you have to put your ego in check. And so much about being, especially the lead singer in a band or the vocalist in a band, or in your case, the band. It's it's so much about like building up that ego wall to protect yourself from hearing your own voice echoed back through a PA from people hurling insults or other terrible bullshit at you. <laughs> like it just feels like to be able to put that in check and become part of a team. Maybe I'm projecting on you here, but it seems like it would be very difficult. It was really easy for me. It was not hard at all. I, I think I come, I come from parents who to my great annoyance, a lot of the time, like I, when Rolling Stone put me in the 500, you know, best records, I wanted to call my parents. My impulse was immediately to call my dad and be like, see, like, don't ask me to make a sandwich. <laughs> you know, like, like, cause they just keep me so grounded. And so don't let me get away with nobody in my real life. lets me get away with ego stuff. Yeah. And it, it pisses me off enormously. I feel like I should get away with more. Um, but they don't. And so like when I'm being a star, uh, I'm thinking like a team player anyway. I'm already thinking like, oh, the band, I'm aware that I'm employing these people and that they have to have a good experience and they have to be heard and I have to know, I have to make good decisions. I lost that self-ego probably as soon as I became a mother. Mm. Like when I became a mom, that just, it wasn't, anything in my career that changed. It was having a child and realizing, I mean, it, it can be about me, it can be about you, it can be about anything, but we're here to make art. We're here to make something happen. We're here to make something that didn't exist, exist. And wherever you are on that, you should be treated well and you should be feeling like an important part of that team. So therefore I can move to any position in that team. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think, you know, uh, but there's just something that, really the psychological impact of having your favorite candies at a venue when you show up <laughs> waiting for you. I don't think it's been fully studied yet. <laughs> oh, I remember when my ego was well out of check. <laughs> I remember, but I wasn't a very happy person. So like it, it, there's a comforting yeah. thought that I'm happier without it because when you have that ego ballooning, everything hurts. Everything's a slight. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, like none of those people ever seem very happy from the outside no, they're, when they're, they're going through that moment, you know, being hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, that, and this isn't to excuse anyone's behavior when they're in that moment, but it's almost like no matter how hard you try and resist it, I think anyone who came out of punk rock actively does try and resist it. Parts of it creep in because the system's set up to make you that way. It feels like on some level. Well, it's the human animal, you know, if you, you can absolutely tap into what are our deepest instincts. And one of them is to be a baby crying and get food, mm -hmm. you know, like I got to survive. I got to survive. I got to survive. That is what that, that feeds into. Like, you're so important. We need to get you to the hotel first and you need to stay in a better room. Cause you're so important, you know, like, and 
don't think I don't. I'll change hotels if I don't like my room. Like I'm <laughs> notorious, notorious. I tell you, like it has to be like a good room, and and all this kind of stuff is true. But but it's like anything in life. I love marijuana. I love it. I Same love here. It. Oh my I god! Love preach, it. preach. But I am not allowed to do it every day. And who's <laughs> who's to stop me? There's no one to stop me. But I know for me, it isn't good for me. Right. Mm-hmm. But there isn't a day that I don't wish I could just like fuck off and be high and just be, oh, I can't even talk about it. But like you have to develop systems like everybody wants to be the star. Everybody wants to get the good room. Everybody wants to be treated as incredibly important. Everybody wants that. But you have to put roadblocks in front of yourself because you'll just wind up miserable. Yeah, no, very, very true. What about like daily CBD uses? John? I don't mean to get sorry. This is my other favorite topic is cannabis. So I don't mean to, we can, say we can talk about it forever. No, I don't give my, like, I literally have to make my baseline sober and then mm-hmm. my escapes from that pandemic. My son has given me a better schedule. I get more pot than like <laughs> normal because it's harder, but my baseline always has to be sober. So I have to live most of my life sober. And then I get to take these like lost weeks and do what I want. I mean, if, if it's a party, I'm going to do whatever anyone gives me. So mm-hmm. stand back from that. And the asshole comes out at the party. Oh, the asshole comes out. Even with cannabis, the asshole comes out? Oh, the asshole just comes out because I figure it's a finite amount of time and I, I'm going to win that party. <laughs> <laughs> so I go into parties as if they're a sport. And yeah. what I mean by winning that party is not only am I going to be popular and talk to everyone I want to talk to, but I'm going to find all the antechambers and whatever anyone is doing in a secret private room. <clears throat> I'm going to get access to that. So like parties are a sport to me and I definitely want to have the best night that I possibly can. Well, Liz, you have won the turned out a punk party today. This <laughs> hey, has been awesome. absolutely incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Liz, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Liz will be back for a part two at some point in the future because uh, that was awesome. So stoked they got to do that. Remember, Sober Issues coming out later on this year. And hopefully, knock on wood, Garbage in Alanis Morissette and Liz Fair will be heading out on tour later on this year. We keep we keep hoping. You know, more tours are getting announced. Uh, I hope this happens safely and, and these things can happen. Oh, my gosh. Can't wait. Can't wait. Speaking of not being able to wait, I can't wait for the next episode of this show, because coming up next on this show, Georgia Hardstark will be on the show. That's right. The host or or one half of my favorite murder, someone that has built a, one of the most popular podcasts. Like I've told a few people that she's going to be coming on the show and oh my gosh, people are stoked for this one. I'm stoked for this one. It is a amazing conversation. Um, and, uh, yeah, it goes a lot of, a lot of really interesting places. She has had quite the journey and, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so free to hear it. All right. That is it. Remember as always black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. These, these aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. Go out now, get informed, read, sign petitions, lend your, your support, lend your body if need be to help. Uh, we need to f- smash fascism, you know, like this, this world just, just can't do with Nazis. You know, they, they don't, they're no fun. Nazis are no fun. Um, and yeah, 
sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come for those organs, you're not going to need them. Um, and it's, it, it can help someone else immensely. I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience on that. Wear your mask, please. We want to get back to doing these shows, you know, and the vaccines are rolling out now and it's, it's great, but you know, please, please just keep, keep wearing it. Keep a little bit longer, maybe a lot bit longer, but still better than the alternative. Um, and, uh, what else, what else do I say? Oh, go and go and do something creative for yourself. Go draw a picture. I don't know, start a fanzine, do something because it'll help your mental health. That's for sure. And that's it. I think that's it. Um, stay safe. I love you. My God, it's been a hard day, but, um, uh, it's, 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 that's what I say. Do the creative things. You know, I feel a little bit better having done this and, uh, I'll see you, uh, on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Love you. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.